0: Every weekday on the History Daily Podcast, Lindsay Graham takes you back in time to explore a momentous moment that happened on this day in history. 1989 was a pivotal year for the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, free elections in Poland and the almost bloodless revolutions in the other Warsaw Pact countries apart from Romania. However, two other important events occurred in 1989 and this bonus episode Will cover those events. So here is the 1989 US invasion of Panama and the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, courtesy of our friends at History Daily. Just search History Daily in your podcast app for further episodes.
1: It's February 1959. the Chorillos Military College in Lima, Peru. A quiet 25-year-old student is using the bathroom between classes. He walks across to the basin and begins washing his hands. As he works up a soapy lather, the quiet student studies his appearance in the mirror. He's always hated the way he looks. He's short, barely over five feet, and chronic acne as a teenager has left him with pockmarked cheeks and a cruel nickname, Pineapple Face. Between his lack of self-confidence and the constant bullying, he struggled to make friends. The bathroom door bangs open, and a group of his classmates walk in. As always, they ignore the quiet student and head straight to the urinals, where they continue their animated conversation about a recent event that made headlines across the globe. Last month, a Cuban revolutionary named Fidel Castro toppled the government of Cuba, turning the island into a communist stronghold sparking genuine fear among anti-communist countries of a socialist wave spreading across Latin America. The quiet student listens to his classmates' chatter, absorbing every word. When he's done washing his hands, he turns off the faucet and heads back to class. Later that day, he returns to his dorm room and settles down at a desk, feeding a sheet of paper into his typewriter. Then he begins transcribing from memory the conversation he overheard in the bathroom. Every word related to Cuba, Castro, and communism in Latin America. Soon, he will pass these documents on to his handlers, who just a few weeks ago hired the young man to gather information. Pineapple Face is no ordinary college student. His name is Manuel Noriega, and he's a paid informant for the CIA. After graduating from the military academy in Peru, Noriega will return to his native Panama, where he will spend the next few decades climbing the ranks of the military. When a violent coup ousts the Panamanian government, Noriega will find himself catapulted into a senior role as head of military intelligence. And eventually, in 1983, he will emerge as the dictator of Panama, completing his stratospheric rise from a victim of bullying one of Latin America's most notorious strongmen. Throughout this period, Noriega will remain one of the CIA's most valuable assets, selling information about communism in Latin America. But when the dictator's ruthless regime begins to make headlines around the world, the relationship between Noriega and the U.S. will turn sour. Before long, President George H.W. Bush will decide to get rid of America's once-trusted informant, By launching an invasion of Panama to remove General Noriega from power on December 20th, 1989. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 20th, 1989. The U.S. invades Panama. It's the morning of July 31st, 1981. A small passenger plane sputters above the mountains of central Panama. Seated on board is a handsome 52-year-old man wearing army fatigues. General Omar Torrijos is the military dictator of Panama. This morning, he's on his way to visit local residents in the town of Coclacito, But his mind, as usual, is racing. Torrijos takes out a cigar and clamps it between his teeth before lighting up. Then he closes his eyes and leans back in his seat. As the cabin fills with smoke, Torrijos reflects on the deal he recently struck with the President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. The so-called Torrijos-Carter Treaty was the culmination of decades of effort, as the government of Panama sought to gain control over its most famous waterway, the Panama Canal. Since 1903, the canal has been controlled by the United States. But by signing this treaty, the U.S. has agreed to relinquish authority of the vital shipping lane to Panama by the year 1999, provided that American ships retain access to its waters. This agreement is a major victory for Panama. But the deal was made between Torrijos and Carter. But last year, Carter lost re-election. America's new president, Ronald Reagan, was one of the most prominent opponents of the Panama Canal Treaty. And now that Reagan is in office, Torrijos is concerned that America might break some of the promises that President Carter made. But today, Torrijos' mind isn't on Ronald Reagan alone. He's also deeply concerned about a member of his own government. For years, Torrijos has been struggling to keep in check his own head of intelligence, Manuel Noriega. Ever since the coup that thrust Torrijos into power, Noriega has been a loyal foot soldier for Panama's government. His ruthlessness and cunning became an invaluable asset to Torrijos, who would always turn to Noriega whenever he needed an opponent silenced or a foreign official bribed. But Torrijos knows that Noriega feeds on vice and corruption. From drug trafficking to weapon smuggling, there are few criminal pursuits in which Noriega does not indulge. And normally, Torrijos turns a blind eye to these nefarious activities. But recently, Noriega went too far. Torrijos caught him selling guns to left-wing militants in El Salvador, an ally to Panama. That made the dictator furious. He reprimanded Noriega, but Torrijos stopped short of firing him altogether. As the plane begins its descent, Torrijos tries to banish all thoughts of Noriega from his mind. Outside, the weather has turned stormy, and a high-pitched whine is coming from the engine as the aircraft begins to rattle and shake in the high winds. Growing alarmed, Torrijos casts his eyes forward toward the cockpit. He sees the pilots grappling with the controls, their knuckles turning white around the throttle. Suddenly, the plane lists violently to one side. Fearful shrieks ripple throughout the cabin. And with trembling fingers, Torrijos buckles his seatbelt and pulls it tight. Through the window, he can see the forested mountainside rushing up toward him, getting ever closer as the plane nosedives toward the earth. Torrijos closes his eyes and murmurs a prayer. A split second later, the airplane crashes into the mountainside in a spectacular blaze of fire and debris. The death of the popular and charismatic Torrijos will be followed by a public outpouring of grief across Panama. While most regard the plane crash as a tragedy, one man will recognize the general's death as an opportunity. Manuel Noriega has always been able to manipulate situations to his advantage. Since his 20s, Noriega has been selling information to the CIA, all the while following his other pursuits of drug trafficking and weapons smuggling. Even when U.S. authorities began cracking down on the global narcotics trade, Noriega was immune from prosecution. His status as a valuable CIA asset left him free to do as he pleased. And now, following the death of Torrijos, Noriega will outmaneuver his rivals to emerge as the military leader of Panama. Over the next few years, he will set about consolidating power. He will torture and kill his political enemies. He will implement widespread press censorship, and he will continue to make millions from the illegal trade of weapons and drugs. All the while, Noriega will still cooperate with the CIA, selling information pertaining to communist activities throughout Latin America. But as reports of Noriega's corrupt and brutal regime begin to make headlines, the United States government will change its policy towards the once-trusted informant. In 1988, a federal court in Miami will bring drug trafficking charges against the dictator, And when U.S. intelligence discovers that Noriega has been selling American military secrets to Fidel Castro's government in Cuba, the CIA will come to believe that removing the dictator from power will become a necessary measure to protect national security. Still, the United States cannot simply remove the leader of a sovereign country without just cause. For the newly elected president, George H.W. Bush, it will take the killing of an American soldier to provide the final justification for sending U.S. troops into Panama— to depose Noriega by force. It's the evening of December 16, 1989, four days before America's invasion of Panama. Lieutenant Robert Paws of the United States Marine Corps sits in the back seat of a white Chevrolet as it wends its way through the streets of Panama City. Robert rolls down a window and drapes his short-sleeved arm against the door, enjoying the feeling of the warm air on his bare skin. He calls up to the driver and asks him to turn up the radio. Then Robert closes his eyes and listens to the pulsating music. Robert is one of 12,000 U.S. troops stationed in Panama, where they're responsible for safeguarding American interests along the Panama Canal. In the past, relations between the U.S. and Panama and its authoritarian leader, Manuel Noriega, had been friendly. But recently, things have soured. After losing a general election, Noriega claimed fraud, voided the results and had his opponent arrested and beaten. A few months later, representatives from the U.S. government entered to negotiations with Noriega, urging him to resign peacefully. The Americans had grown tired of Noriega's increasing brutality, authoritarianism, criminality, and double-crossing. But just yesterday, Noriega made a speech reaffirming his position as head of state and declaring that the United States and Panama were now at war. American troops stationed in Panama have been advised to remain on high alert and directed not to leave their bases. Despite these warnings, 25-year-old Lieutenant Robert Paws and his fellow soldiers are heading to a nearby Marriott Hotel for dinner. Up ahead, Robert sees a roadblock guarded by members of the Panama Defense Force, Noriega's loyal band of thuggish militants. It dawns on Robert that his car, a Chevy with Michigan license plates, is unmistakably American. And this might cause trouble. Slowly, the car rolls to a standstill at the roadblock. The guards surround the vehicle, brandishing AK-47s and shouting aggressively. Robert tells the driver to back up. And soon, the Chevy is thrown into reverse and screeches off. But as they accelerate down the road, the Panamanian guards open fire. Bullets shatter the rear window, with one striking Robert in the upper back. The driver speeds to a nearby hospital, but it's too late. Shortly before arriving in the emergency room, Lieutenant Robert Paws is pronounced dead. The news of Robert's killing will soon reach the White House, and for newly elected President George H.W. Bush, the tragedy will become confirmation that military action against Panama is required, a necessary step in order to bring the regime of Manuel Noriega to an end. So on December 20th, 1989, President Bush sits behind his desk in the Oval Office, preparing to make an official statement. The 65-year-old president adjusts his glasses and addresses the television cameras before him.
2: Fellow citizens, last night I ordered U.S. military forces to Panama. No president takes such action lightly. This morning, I want to tell you what I did and why I did it. For nearly two years, the United States, nations of Latin America and the Caribbean have worked together to resolve the crisis in Panama. The goals of the United States have been to safeguard the lives of Americans, to defend democracy in Panama, to combat drug trafficking, and to protect the integrity of the Panama Canal Treaty. Many attempts have been made to resolve this crisis through diplomacy and negotiations. All were rejected by the dictator of Panama General Manuel Noriega, an indicted drug trafficker.
1: Bush proceeds to explain the various abuses committed by Noriega and the urgent need to intervene with military action in order to save the lives of Americans stationed in Panama. The president's voice resonates with conviction, but when the cameras switch off, a look of apprehension passes over Bush's face. He knows the invasion that's about to take place is no small matter soon Operation Just Cause will be put into motion, with 27,000 American troops dispatched to Panama in what will be the United States' first large-scale military intervention since Vietnam War.
2: Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who
0: and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com
1: donate to find out more. It's the morning of December 20th, 1989, inside a prison in Panama City. Kurt Mews, an incarcerated American spy, sits slumped against the wall of his cell. Outside, he can hear the sound of machine gun fire and the dull drone of helicopters. Kurt knows what's happening. The U.S. invasion to oust Manuel Noriega from power has begun. Outside the cell door, a prison guard watches the ceiling, listening carefully to the shooting outside. Kurt knows the guard has been ordered to shoot him in the event of a U.S. invasion. Kurt glances furtively at the AK 47 slung across the guard's chest, a shiver of dread shooting down the American spine. Kurt was arrested earlier this year for setting up covert anti Noriega radio stations in Panama. But even behind bars, he has been following the political situation unfolding. Recently, Noriega declared war on the United States and reaffirmed his status as head of state after refusing to acknowledge the results of last year's election. Kurt knows the Bush administration cannot stand by and let Noriega threaten American interests in Panama. The invasion was inevitable, but now Kurt fears he could become its first victim. Kurt flinches as a loud explosion reverberates through the prison. A second later, the door to the cell block bursts open, and two American Delta Force elite soldiers storm through. They shoot the guard and then place a small explosive charge on the locked Kurt cell. With a loud pop, the door swings open, and Kurt is rushed out of the prison and bundled into the back of a U.S. Army helicopter. The mission to rescue Kurt Muse from prison took just six minutes to execute. The U.S. invasion of Panama will be similarly brief and effective. Manuel Noriega will immediately seek refuge in the Vatican City's embassy in Panama, where he will remain in hiding. Meanwhile, Noriega's defense forces will be swiftly overpowered by the invading Americans. And within two days, the shooting will stop. 23 American troops will be killed in action, while just over 300 Panamanians will lose their lives. Then on January 3rd, Noriega will surrender to the U.S. Special Operations Forces, who have surrounded the embassy in which he's taken refuge. The former dictator will be extradited to the U.S., where he will be prosecuted for drug trafficking, money laundering, and racketeering, and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Today, the legacy of the U.S. invasion of Panama is mixed. Many in Panama maintain that the military action was nothing more than America's attempt to protect its capitalist interests overseas and a violation of Panama's status as a sovereign power. Others argued that the invasion was a necessary measure to bring Manuel Noriega's ruthless and oppressive regime to an end. Whatever the case, in the years since 1989, control of the Panama Canal was handed over to the Panamanians, and relations between the United States and Panama have been characterized by mutual respect and cooperation, an undeniably positive outcome of the military invasion that ousted Manuel Noriega from power on December 20, 1989. Next on History Daily, December 21st, 1968 Apollo 8, the first crewed spacecraft to successfully orbit the moon and return to Earth launches from the Kennedy Space Center From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham Audio editing by Molly Vaughn Sound design by Misha Stanton Music by Lindsey Graham this episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noisy. It's May 4th, 1919, at Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China, almost six months after the end of World War I. A Chinese university student pushes his way through the massive Gate of Heavenly Peace at the north of the square, where 3,000 other students have gathered to protest the actions of the Chinese government. Recently, the student has learned that the government plans to cede lands in eastern China to Japan as part of the Treaty of Versailles, the diplomatic end to World War I. The student joins thousands of others in calling for an end to the government's weakness and their acceptance of Japanese imperialism. He demands that the Chinese government protect their own people and refuse to sign the treaty. The student is angry, but not as angry as some of the others. The student hears shop windows shattering near the square. He fears the protest is about to turn violent. He looks for an exit from the square. But it's too late. He's swept up in a throng of people pushing from the square out into the street. The student looks on in horror as the group of protesters light torches hurl them at a nearby house. Flames leap from the home and smoke billows into the air as the shouts from the protesters grow louder and the crowd more eager for violence. A warning shot fires overhead and the student turns to see a line of police marching down the street. He tries again to flee but he can't escape the swarm of protesters and soon the police apprehend him throwing him to the ground. The student shields his face and cries out as one of the policemen hits him with a club. Finally, he's picked up off the ground, pulled from the chaos and taken into custody. Later that day, the student will sit in a jail cell, trying to nurse his wounds along with countless other protesters who were beaten and jailed. Alarmed by the student uprising that began in Tiananmen Square, China will eventually refuse to sign the Treaty of Versailles, and the government will release the jailed protesters those students became symbols of what's known as the May 4th Movement that inspires cultural change in China and ignites student protests for years to come. Decades later, calling on memories of the May 4th Movement, thousands of students will return to Tiananmen Square to mount weeks of pro-democracy demonstrations aimed at China's communist regime. But the student protests will spark an aggressive military response that will leave hundreds dead and thousands wounded starting on June 3rd, 1989. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is May 31st, the Tiananmen Square Massacre. It's the night of April 21st, 1989, on a college campus in Beijing. In the dark, 21-year-old student Wuer Kaixi stands outside near a makeshift stage. Wu is nervous. He's organized a student rally for a democratic reform in China. He hoped maybe a few hundred students would show up, but word quickly spread to other universities, and now tens of thousands have gathered to hear Wu share his vision for a freer China. Days earlier, Hu Yaobang, a former government official, died of a heart attack. Many young people saw Hu as their leader in the fight against oppressive authoritarian rule in China. Hu's funeral is scheduled for tomorrow. So tonight, Wu and the other students have gathered to pay their respects— and to ensure that the fight for democracy doesn't die with their leader. Wu takes a deep breath. He reminds himself that he's prepared, he believes in his message, and he's also a talented showman. Wu leaps onto the stage and steps into a spotlight as the crowd cheers him on. Wu inspires the audience by speaking out against the government in a way most people are too afraid to do. He talks about the freedoms enjoyed in democratic nations. He says that they, as Chinese citizens, have no less right to those freedoms than anyone else. He paints a picture of a China where people can speak out against the government without fear of reprisal. When Wuor finishes speaking, the energy on campus is electric. Wuor wants to keep the rally going and show the public how angry China's young people truly are. He knows where they need to go next. So Wuor leads thousands of students in lockstep to Tiananmen Square. When they reach the gate of heavenly peace, Wuor calls out to them to link arms in a show of solidarity— He wants everyone to know that this protest is led by China's youth, and they're willing to stand together. But soon, government officials arrive and tell the students camped out in the square to clear out before Hu Yaobang's funeral the following day. But by the next morning on April 22nd, Wu and the others have refused to leave. And they're joined by thousands of students from other universities. By the end of the day, close to 100,000 students have gathered in the square. Wu and other leaders quickly realize they can turn their pro-democracy rally into a full-blown movement. Along with Wu, another student leader's voice starts to catch the tension of those around her. Her words are sharp, angry, and inspiring. At 23 years old, Chai Ling is already a gifted speaker, who spent much of her time at school organizing protests. Now she's ready to use her skills on a much larger scale. Over the next several days, Chai and Wu become part of a small leadership group that aims to shape the protesters into a more cohesive body. They decide their ultimate goal should be to get government officials to meet with them and hear their demands. But first, they have to determine what they're asking for. They discuss the need for democracy and an end to authoritarian rule. But Wu urges them to create clear, actionable items to present to the government. The leadership group doesn't always agree, and they're often disorganized. But eventually, they do decide to push for a few basic democratic principles. Freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and due process. They also call for more transparency in government, which they believe will curtail what they see as rampant corruption among Chinese leadership. But Chai and Wu know their list of demands won't mean anything if there's no one to listen. In order to get a high-ranking government official to even hear them out, they decide they need to expand their movement beyond Tiananmen Square. So Chai, Wu, and the leadership group travel to college campuses in Beijing to encourage student sit-ins and to spread the word of their effort to other major Chinese cities. But while they're spreading the message, they agree to continue their occupation of Tiananmen Square. Throughout April and into May, their movement grows. Student sit-ins take place at universities all across the country. Older Chinese citizens rally to the cause as well, coming to the square, passing out leaflets in town, and spreading the movement's pro-democracy message. As thousands more join the fight, Chai and Wu are finally contacted by government officials who promise to sit down with them. But the meeting never seems to happen, and eventually Chai grows impatient. She tells the group they need to do something drastic to get the government's attention. In May of 1989, Chai, Wu and other student leaders will organize a hunger strike. But the students' actions will anger the government, and before long those in power will try to stop the protests by force. It's early afternoon on May 13, 1989, at a university cafeteria. Chai Ling sits among a group of 200 students. They dig into what will be their last meal before starting a hunger strike. The students all wear headbands with a revolutionary message scrawled across the fabric, Give me liberty or give me death. Days earlier, Chai debated with other student leaders about the need to stage a hunger strike. Some believed that Chai was going too far. They argued that students shouldn't risk their health for the sake of protest. But Chai disagreed. She said they needed to do something bold to make the government pay attention. Eventually, Chai's arguments won the day, and before long, volunteers for the hunger strike started lining up. Today, the students finish their last meal in the cafeteria. Then Chai leads them on a march back to Tiananmen Square. She shouts to anyone within earshot, we are staging a hunger strike to reveal the true face of the government and of the people. Chai's call for bold action appears to pay off almost immediately. On May 14th, the second day of the strike, Chai, Wu'er, and other student leaders are whisked from Tiananmen Square to the office of the Minister of China's United Front, a department designed to recognize and confront potential opposition to China's Communist Party. There, the students finally get their face-to-face meeting with a high-ranking official. The minister greets the students as honored guests. He apologizes that it's taken so long to open up a dialogue with them. He also expresses concern over the health of the students who are on the hunger strike. Chai can't help but think her tactics are working. But soon, the minister makes his true motive clear. He informs the students that on the following day, May 15th, Soviet Union leader Mikhail Gorbachev is arriving in China for the two nations' first summit since the 1950s. The minister says the Chinese government intends to welcome Mr. Gorbachev in Tiananmen Square. Then the minister gives an ominous warning, saying... If the students do not leave the square by tomorrow, the consequences will be hard to predict. He adds, none of us wants to see anything bad happen. When the student leaders return to Tiananmen Square, they're already at odds about how to respond. Wuor says they should at least partially clear the square and show their support for Gorbachev. He says over the past several years, the Soviet leader has been a force of social reform in his own communist nation. Wu believes Gorbachev can inspire China to make the types of changes the students are pushing for. But Chai disagrees. She argues that Gorbachev's visit means Western journalists will flock to China to cover the summit. She wants the world's media to see the hunger strike and broadcast their protests all over the world. Again, Chai wins the argument. On May 15th, Western journalists arrive to cover the upcoming summit, but many are instantly drawn to the events taking place in Tiananmen Square. The Western media covers the story of the hunger strike and the massive student demonstration, just like Chai hoped. The Chinese government has no desire to draw more attention to the students, so Chinese leaders scrap any attempt to bring Gorbachev to Tiananmen Square. Chai sees this as a victory. She knows the students have forced the government's hand with the whole world watching. Chai believes the movement is gaining real power. But Western media coverage of the protests... And the students' refusal to leave the square for Gorbachev's arrival angers the Chinese government. Chai and Wu begin to hear rumors of possible military action. In late May, they learn that small bands of soldiers are being bussed in from outside the city to try to shut the protests down. Chai and Wu quickly spring into action and help organize groups to intercept the soldiers' buses on the road, stopping them from reaching the square. Their plan works. Huge groups of peaceful protesters surround the soldiers' buses and make it impossible for them to move. Some of the soldiers are stranded for days before the government finally calls off the operation. After their peaceful stand against the incoming soldiers, Chai and Wu believe victory is within sight. But the Chinese government is done playing games. In early June, soldiers and tanks will flood Tiananmen Square, bringing the student demonstration to a violent end. It's the night of June 3, 1989, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Wu kai stands in front of the roughly 10,000 students who are still gathered in the square. He prepares to give what he believes will be his final speech. Wu, Chai Ling, and the other students receive news that the government is planning to send tanks and soldiers to the square to crush the protest. But Wu and Chai won't go down without a fight. Wu summons as much energy as he can and calls out to the crowd, Tiananmen Square is ours, the people's, and we will not allow butchers to tread on it. We will defend Tiananmen Square and defend the future of China. But any thought of the future quickly disappears when Wu and the others hear the sound of tanks as the military enters Tiananmen Square and soldiers open fire on the unarmed protesters. Many of the students try to stand their ground. They set fire to some of the soldiers' buses in and around the square but as the violence escalates, thousands of protesters give up, running to safety. Wuor knows if he's caught, he will be sent to prison or executed. And many of his supporters know it, too. They quickly concoct a plan to get Wuor out of Tiananmen Square. Late on the night of June 3rd, 1989, an ambulance speeds into the square. One of the students grabs Wuor and helps him into the back. The student then conceals Wuor under the body of a dead protester. The ambulance then whisks wu to safety, and from there he will go on the run and eventually escape to Hong Kong. Amidst the chaos, Chai also rushes out of the square before the student's final withdrawal and leaves the city by train. She will eventually sail to America, hidden in a crate. Both leaders will spend their lives in exile. The next morning, soldiers will continue their assault on the remaining students until the military gains complete control of Tiananmen Square. Then they clear the square of the dead, the wounded, and any evidence of the protest. The Chinese government downplays the incident, claiming 241 people died, the majority of whom were soldiers. But the Western media dubs the military action the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and multiple independent studies list the death toll of the protesters as close to 1,000 with thousands more maimed or wounded. Those numbers don't account for any of the protesters who are believed to have been executed after being taken into custody. Then, on June 5th, the Chinese government makes a show of force by rolling tanks through a now-empty Tiananmen Square. That day, briefly, a lone protester steps in front of the tanks. Images of this man will be broadcast all over the world. The unidentified protester, often called Tank Man, will come to represent all of the people who stood up and fought for change until they were attacked by the military in Tiananmen Square on June 3, 1989. Next on History Daily, June 6, 1944. On D-Day, over 150,000 Allied troops stormed the beach at Normandy, beginning the liberation of Western Europe from Nazi Germany. From Neuser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Michael Federico. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser.
0: Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate for more information.